to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Mary Matte. How are you, Katie? I'm good. You? I'm well. I'm well. Uh, I just wanted to point attention to uh, the dress that I'm wearing. It has peace signs on it. Uh, and then I think some Hindi writing that I don't understand. But if anyone's watching and you want to comment in the YouTube section about what this says, if you speak Hindi or read Hindi, that would be cool. Uh, and shout out to the store I got this at. It's called Either Or, and it's a bit of a schlep to get to, but if you're ever in Pune, India, make sure you stop by there. I don't travel for shopping. I was in India visiting my friends who <laughs> live there. Yeah. Anyway. You don't fly across the world to no. pick up a dress? Wow, no, okay. I haven't made it that far yet. Yeah, yeah. I haven't reached those heights. I'm not like international pretty woman, as in the Julie Roberts film. <laughs> yeah you know I, I know some guys who go to vietnam just to get suits made really i mean they also do traveling while they're there but their main motive in going to vietnam is getting suits made because apparently in vietnam there are tailors who will give you an amazing suit you know perfectly tailored right customized. at a really good price so huh yeah interesting wow and these are just civilians regular people who like wearing suits regular civilians wow you know, again, this is why you tune into Useful Idiots, because not only are you getting your uh, cultural tips, you're also getting transatlantic fashion tips. Transatlantic fashion tips, the yeah. most important type of uh, fashion tips. Yeah. You guys, we are your one-stop transatlantic shop for pop culture, political analysis, and fashion. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, should we get to our four basic food groups? Yeah, let's do it. So let's start with De Democrat Suck, and that's, that's my uh, assignment for this week. So uh, we're going to turn to the Americas, Summit of the Americas, uh, which is being boycotted by the presidents of Mexico, Bolivia, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, because Biden did not invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. Uh, the Summit of the Americas is taking place right now, and it's taking place in Los Angeles. Here's Karine Jean-Pierre responding to the fact that Manuel Lopez Obrador of Mexico uh, decided to boycott the summit. So given people are not going to the summit, President of Mexico, President of Honduras, and the Vice President recently spoke directly to, uh, what does it say about the strength of U.S. influence in the region of these people deciding they don't want to go? Yeah, let me just speak to the President of Mexico very quickly, because I have something in there for you. Uh, we have had candid engagement with President Lopez Obrador, as well with other regional partners. So I like that she doesn't even pretend to have memorized any talking points. I mean, she certainly doesn't pretend that she has an authentic uh, answer to this, that she's at all like responding in real time with any spontaneity. You know, other press secretaries, they're kind of more subtle about this. They look up after they look down, but she's not even looking up. She kind of owns it. She's like phoning it in, but owning it, which makes it kind of not phoning it in, if that makes sense. It's a tough job when Pretty much every word you articulate is a lie or a deflection of some kind. And so that makes eye contact with the people yes. asking you questions that much more uncomfortable. So not looking up, I think, is the best way to get through it, just to just read the script, get it yeah. out there and you know, soldier on to the next yeah. one. Yeah, we can call it a Kareen. She's pulling a Kareen. In mm -hmm. fact, we should use that moving forward whenever someone looks down at their script and refuses to make eye contact. Okay, that's Let's keep Tough going. Job. You have invitations uh, to the summit. 
It is important to acknowledge that there are a range of views on this question in our hemisphere as there are in the United States. The president's oh, principled position is that we do not believe that dictators should be invited, which is the reason um, that he has, um, the president has decided not to attend. Uh, we look forward to hosting Foreign Secretary Ibarra as the Mexican representative. So, and so we he's welcome saying Mexico's that we believe that we shouldn't be inviting dictators, which is the reason that the president has decided not to attend. Okay, so she's defending this as a pro-democracy position, a refusal to uh, invite dictators to a summit, and we'll see why that's so ironic in a, in a, in a bit, but let's just keep listening. Was significant contribution to the summit to the to the major summit deliverables president biden and first lady and the first lady look forward to welcoming uh, president obrador and for and the first lady uh, of mexico to washington in july for a bilateral visit at that meeting president biden and president obrador will have the opportunity to carry the work forward for the summit um to your second to your other to your actual question i just wanted to make sure i dealt with mexico because we had a little announcement there um the u.s remains the most powerful force in driving uh, hemis hemispheric actions to address core challenges uh, facing the people of the Americas, inequality, health, climate, and food security. And so the president continues to be a leader in the hemisphere. So basically, don't worry, guys, the U.S. is still the hegemon, despite the fact that we don't have the power to bully other presidents into coming to our summit. So it's all good, guys. So yeah. And, and missing from, of course, her statement and media reporting is that these three countries, Venezuela, Cuba, Nicaragua, have been the target of decades of U.S. regime change and destabilization efforts uh, with the U.S. trying to overthrow governments there, not because of their supposed uh, authoritarianism or dictatorships, but because they don't follow U.S. orders. Unlike other dictatorships, the U.S. has propped up in the Western Hemisphere over the same period. So that's what this is about. And the Biden administration is totally continuing that, even as they have to walk back their Venezuela operations slightly because now they need Venezuela's oil because of right. the Ukraine Awkward. crisis. Awkward. So actually, let's show another clip where they speak, uh, Karine uh, Jean-Pierre is speaking directly about Venezuela. And just uh, a heads up, the shadow president, is that what we would call Juan Guaido? He's a wannabe president. He's never actually been elected, but he kind of identifies as president. Um, his name is Juan Guaido, okay, G-U-A-I-D-O, that's how you spell it. And speaking of authoritarian leaders, this question is about um, Bolsonaro as well. Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, who apparently asked for certain concessions before agreeing to attend. Sorry, Jeff, so, uh, so I've been present meeting with uh, President Bolsonaro of Brazil. Um, he, he's reporting that uh, the Brazilian government, President Bolsonaro, wanted concessions from the president for, the, for that meeting that they, and for his attendance at the Summit of the Americas, that he wouldn't bring up uh, Bolsonaro's casting doubts about Brazil's election system, as well as uh, uh, environmental concerns in the Amazon. Can you confirm that report? I, I cannot confirm that report. The president is um, is is looking forward to leaving tomorrow uh, to head to the summit. That clearly that we're uh, that we are hosting. That we're totally um, hosting. I can say this: the, the United States continues to recognize um, Juan Guado as the interim president of Venezuela. That said, while the interim government was uh, was not invited uh, to participate in the main summit, they are welcome to participate in all three stakeholder forums and other events just embarrassing because she's basically saying we recognize Juan Guaido 
as the interim president, but we're not inviting said interim president, but they can attend other things. They're allowed to come, you know, it's like pathetic. It's like when you go to, when there's a benefit and you can't pay full price, so you can't attend the benefit, but there's like an after party that you can go to. Or a family gathering and there's a kid's table. Yeah, right. They're allowed to be at the kid's table, like the after party kid's table combo. Now, speaking of dictatorships, Look how committed Joe Biden is to freedom mm -hmm. and democracy. Um, and we're going to show you one more clip of poor Karine Jean-Pierre trying to cover for Biden. And this is where she has to very uncomfortably respond to questions about Biden's plan to visit uh, Saudi Arabia and meet with Mohammed bin Salman, uh, lauded champion of civil rights, human rights, <laughs> and uh, open, fair uh, elections and democracy. So Saudi Arabia has been a strategic partner uh, of the United States for eight decades. Every president since FDR has met with Saudi leaders. As I've said, the president will meet with any leader if it serves the interests of the American people. That's what he puts first. He believes engagement with Saudi leaders clearly meets that test, as has every president before him. What's interesting about this is that, yes, I guess every president has met with Saudi Arabia, but um, Biden said he would treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah. So that means that he lied. I guess it's not uh, uh, that surprising. But yes, he did, he did pledge to treat Saudi Arabia as a pariah over the killing of uh, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who was uh, dismembered under... Uh, we know that the Vin Salman knew about this. There was an investigation into that, and he was involved in it on some level. And despite this investigation, uh, the United States decided not to treat him as a pariah. There you have it. Again, as as uh, Karine Jean-Pierre uh, said, reading from the script, the United States does not support dictators, so that's why they're meeting with Mohammed bin Salman. It's so awkward because for the last three months, Biden's been going around saying that the struggle of the U.S. and of his administration, his lodestar, really, is the struggle of democracy against autocracy. Right. And here's the leader of the supposed struggle of democracy against autocracy going to grovel before the feet of one of the worst authoritarian regimes in the world, uh, Saudi Arabia, because he needs their oil because of the crisis in Ukraine. So right. it shows that the struggle is, uh, is not so real. Right, not so real. And by the way, shout out to um, Abby Martin, who's been on the show, as well as Eugene Purrier at Breakthrough News. They both uh, asked Blinken some very good questions at the Summit uh, of the Americas. Good work, guys. Yes, they did. Yeah. yeah. They asked him about how he can, for example, lecture other countries like Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba about press freedom when he is helping to cover up for the murder of Shireen Abu Akleh in Israel and uh, or, or in Palestine by Israel and also going to embrace Saudi Arabia after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. And by the way, as they continue to imprison Julian Assange, those are great questions and uh, they're all available over at Breakthrough News. Yeah, and if you need any more information about the murder of Shireen Abu Akleh, make sure that you catch our episode from last week with Ali Abu Nima. Um, because that will really drive home how much um, Blinken is just lying when he says that there wasn't an investigation and that it wasn't clear who uh, was responsible for killing her.
Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen. All right. So for Republicans suck, we're going to turn to the domestic front where the Republicans are making America great again by ensuring that millions of children risk losing a free school lunch. And this is the headline from salon.com. Millions of kids face disaster as McConnell GOP threatened to kill school lunch waivers. And this is what the article says. In less than 30 days, a slew of federal waivers that have enabled schools across the US to provide free breakfast and lunch to students during the coronavirus pandemic are set to expire, potentially leaving millions of children without easy access to critical meals. And to the dismay of advocates, Congress, which is currently on recess, doesn't appear poised to act. Jillian Meyer, who was with the No Kid Hungry campaign said, there is no urgency and political appetite to even have this conversation. Frankly, this is not a priority for Congress and the White House. People are really focused on having a return to normal Folks aren't talking about it, and they have no clue that this crisis is looming. In March, obstruction by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and much of his Republican caucus killed an effort to include a temporary extension of the waivers in an omnibus spending package. This is not just a Republican thing. The White House is also not fighting to defend this, but this was spearheaded by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans who are trying to kill free school lunch. It's so gross. What kind of sadists are these people? They're Republicans. I know. They're <laughs> literally trying to starve children. Yeah. You know who had something good to say about this, Katie, a long time ago? Tupac Shakur. A guy named Tupac Shakur. Let's hear what he had to say. You know it's funny when it rains and pours. They got money for war, but can't feed the poor. Did you tweet that out, Aaron? Is that I did. Yeah, I tweet that out almost every day now. Yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, they certainly do suck, those Republicans. Um, they and they claim to be Christian and stuff. And I kind of thought that Jesus wouldn't be into that. I thought Jesus was into feeding the poor. He definitely was. Yeah. Jesus yeah. was definitely down with Tupac's message, not, yeah. not, not Republicans. Right. Uh, well, for uh, moving on to Isn't That Weird, uh, I got a, a great Isn't That Weird. And I have to give a shout out to a friend of show, uh, Shrugs Hugs, who tweeted uh, the other day, Katie Halps is going to have the best time with this and all its pun possibilities on the next Useful Idiots. And he is referring to a story about um, a Shabbat Zoom sex incident. So first, we're going to go to the New York Post, which uh, wrote a bunch of great puns about this story. Shabbat service derails after a couple begins having sex on Zoom. Shabbat is a Jewish uh, holiday that happens every Friday, by the way. Uh, and you can't use electricity during uh, Shabbat. And it's, or, or it's also known as the Sabbath. And it starts at sundown Friday until sundown Saturday. This was some Sabbath service. A randy couple who zoomed into services at a Minneapolis synagogue hosting a bat mitzvah forgot to turn off their camera as they began to make a mitzvah of their own, canoodling in full view of verklempt congregants who were subjected to the softcore sideshow for nearly an hour. The impromptu version of Debbie Does Deuteronomy 
unfolded May 14th in the Twin Cities Temple Bethel. It went on for about 45 minutes, said one person who saw the video and requested anonymity. She was walking around naked. She got dressed. She's in and out of the Zoom. He was in the bed. He whipped it out. She started going to work. Someone on the Zoom saw and called her and was like, WTF are you doing? You're on camera. She freaked out. It was a Zoom for a bat mitzvah. Most people were not on camera except like the old bubbies, that's grandparents, who didn't know how to turn off their camera and these two people. So the boxes were pretty big and everyone could see who was on the camera. Wow, big boxes. Not good when you're naked. The unnamed couple appears to have fallen victim to the uniquely pandemic era problem of accidentally leaving your Zoom camera on before engaging in private behavior, known informally online as pulling a Tubin. The incident is named for CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, who began pleasuring himself on a live Zoom call with staff for The New Yorker uh, in October 2020. The magazine fired him, but CNN allowed him to return to the air after a brief suspension. Sex on Shabbat is specifically encouraged in the Talmud. And some consider it to be a mitzvah or good deed. See, it's, they, they were following, they were trying to be good uh, Jews. While synagogue grandees have moved to lock up the story and keep it from spreading, lurid still images of the couple swiftly began circulating online. Uh, I'm aware of the incident and won't be commenting on the details, said Matt Walter, managing director of Temple Beth Al. And now the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, despite the attempt to, to quiet down the story and keep the story under wraps, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency did a deep dive, so to speak, onto, into the story. And it raises, wow. some very, sorry, raises some very interesting questions. And they have their own good, uh, good puns. So allow me to read some, from some of this. It was a double mitzvah. A couple tuned in online to Shabbat services at their Minnesota synagogue that stripped and started engaging in sexual activity. A Jewish journalist in Detroit tweeted, I'd like to nominate this story as a candidate for journalism sorely needed distinction and pun writing prize. But the incident at Beth L Synagogue in St. Louis Park, a suburb of Minneapolis, is not just a source of levity. It also points to potential risks in the use of streaming technology by conservative synagogues, which are barred by the movement's religious law authorities from engaging with electronic devices on the Sabbath. In allowing the use of streaming on Shabbat in an emergency measure early in the pandemic, the movement's Jewish law committee stated that any streaming equipment should be set it and forget it, teed up prior to Shabbat and not touched once it begins. That may be the reason why the couple was reportedly able to broadcast themselves for 45 minutes with no one from the synagogue intervening to stop them or remove them from the Zoom meeting. I feel terrible for the couple who've had their names smeared, or at least their images smeared, said Rabbi David Paskin, who works at a Florida synagogue and also consults as Torah tech guy with Jewish groups on technology issues. But we're still babies at this, learning how to do this. It's astonishing to me how many people still don't know how to mute or unmute their microphones. I have two thoughts here. First of all, yeah. I really hope that this is not their kink. Oh, okay. you're right. I really hope this is not deliberate, that, they don't, that they're not getting off on broadcasting right. their... On getting uh, off. bedroom activity to the Hopefully. congregation because that, right. that that would be a weird kink but I, you know, yeah. i'm not gonna rule it out right the second thought is i mean the article mentions what happened with jeffrey tubin of cnn who also happens to be jewish and it leads me to a really uncomfortable thought that's like what's up with jews and zoom and pl and pleasuring themselves well now we're gonna have to in order to debunk this anti-semitic conspiracy theory please send us in the stories about goyam pleasuring themselves on zoom if that exists katie it does exist i'm um, sure if that this exists, is a, i think this is a transcultural phenomenon yeah
Yeah, definitely the, send us in your. But Katie, that leads example. me to another. Are we safe doing this show over Zoom? I don't you know, know. Especially today, especially today, we have Glenn Greenwald, who's another Jew. So this is three Jews on Zoom. Very risky. risky and will business. we be able to resist our, you know, primordial urge to engage in sexual conduct on Zoom? I mean, as, as, as Jewish people, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not, not sure. sure. And yeah. you know, you're making me revisit Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently, I mean, we all know from the get-go, Jews were walking around naked. That's right. You know, there's something called a Shabbos goy. Do you know this term? No. A Shabbos goy is someone who's not Jewish, uh-huh. uh, who does stuff like presses the elevator buttons for you. On, okay. Yes, on, right. On Shabbos, right. on Sabbath. So Shabbos, you, can't, yeah. you can't press even the elevator button because that's electronic. Right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's why some hospitals actually have like elevators that stop at every floor on the uh, uh, on weekends or during uh-huh. Sabbath. The Sabbath. So there's a Jewish opinion called the Teshuva, which states in the absence of having someone who is not Jewish designated to deal with these issues, there is a very high risk that a Jewish person will step in and violate not only rabbinic but biblical prohibitions. Therefore, it is strongly urged that if these systems are considered too important to fail, that a non-Jewish person be tasked with monitoring them. So they needed a non-Jew there to kick these people out of the Zoom, or these Jews needed a non-Jew there to, uh, maybe if that was their kink, if their kink, if only their kink had been having sex in front of non-Jews, that would have been very convenient because said non-Jew could have taken them off of Zoom. So really blame the absence of a Shabbos goy. Yeah, we all need a Shabbos goy in our lives. <laughs> so that's my, isn't that weird? Well, that's weird. So for Isn't That Terrible, we have a story coming out of the school system uh, in the U.S. where a teacher has introduced a really terrible award. And this is the headline. Grade eight student, eighth grade student, receives horrible award from new teacher. A mother was left in shock after learning her son's teacher had given him a zero award that left the boy ashamed. It all started when Patricia Buckley came here to Leak Central Junior High to pick up her son. She says when he got in the car, his demeanor was totally different from how it usually is. Bowed up like this, like he was ashamed of it. I was feeling sad and I didn't want to really give it to her. An award that wiped the smile off of Bradley Holloway's face. I think that was so horrible for him to get this kind of award. 14-year-old Holloway was recognized with an award titled the Zero Award. It's impossible to be me. Don't try. You'll never find a solution. A certificate Patricia Buckley calls unacceptable. How do you translate that award? I mean, what do you even, what does that even mean? I don't know. That's why I called to the superintendent's office to see you know, she can tell me to, you know, what do this mean? Buckley says her son receiving this award made her want to cry. She believes her son should have never got the award. Do what I can to, for this to never happen again to not, you know, just only Brad, but any child. Buckley says she spoke to the superintendent multiple times, but has yet to hear about any solutions. She says she was told this was the teacher's first year in the classroom. You know, what's interesting is that the mother says that she didn't find a solution after she complained to the school. And to be fair, the zero award does warn you'll <laughs> never find a solution. So you said the zero award was, was accurate. It was correct. It was a correct prediction. <laughs> zero award. It's impossible to be me. Don't try. You'll never find a solution. 
Well, you know, to Bradley, I think it's very brave to speak out when someone insults you like that, especially an authority figure like a teacher. So yeah. for dealing with the experience of getting a zero award, the useful idiots, we we anoint you a hero. A hero award, award yeah. Right. He's a hero. I will say this, you know, you have to acknowledge the teacher for going through the effort. So like, that wasn't just like scribbling some words yeah. on a piece of paper. Right. Some work was put into making that award with the pictures and the different fonts. Yeah. She put some elbow grease into that, which she makes really it did. even weirder. Yeah. Can't call her a zero, really. No, she's in a hundred, but in a bad way. She kept it hundred. She certainly didn't put in zero effort into her zero award. Yeah, that's for exactly. sure. Exactly. Well, uh, this is great. Okay, I think I feel very, I feel full on those uh, from those consuming those uh, ingesting those four basic food groups. Hopefully, you guys all feel nourished as well. They were delicious as always. Very delicious, yeah. And speaking of delicious, we have a delectable guest for you today. Yes, we do. We're so excited to be talking to Glenn Greenwald, the journalist, the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, the author of most recently Securing Democracy. He's the co-founder of The Intercept, a columnist at Carta Capital, and the co-founder of The Hope Shelter, uh, and the host of System Update. And you can find his writing at greenwald.substack.com. Glenn, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you back on Useful Idiots. Thank you. I'm so excited to be back. So we wanted to talk to you about uh, the Summit of the Americas and uh, a bit about Brazil also, since you are based in Brazil and you've been based there for a while. Also, you were a large part of helping free Lula from jail, and uh, you've done a lot to expose the corruption of Jair Bolsonaro. So uh, before we get into the Summit of the Americas, can you just update us about the presidential uh politics and national politics in Brazil right now? Sure. So there is a presidential election along with the election of the entire Congress and and, and part of the Senate, similar to the way that happens in the U.S. every two years that the entire House of Representatives has to run uh, to get reelected and the entire Senate does. In Brazil, it's once every four years for the House. Um, There are also governor races, but obviously most eyes are on the presidential race where Jair Bolsonaro, who shocked a lot of people by winning in 2018 after four consecutive wins by Lula's center-left Workers' Party, suddenly Bolsonaro won in 2018 while Lula was in prison, is clearly unpopular. I mean, every poll shows this. He wildly mismanaged the COVID crisis. I think that's a large part of it. There have been all kinds of civil wars inside what had been this united movement that he had when he was first elected. He just has kind of alienated many of his old supporters who now are his enemies. So the movement has really divided and minimized. And unlike in 2018, when he got to present himself as this outsider, he's now president of the country. His party has a lot of power in Congress. So he has to run as the guardian of the status quo, not against it. And at the same time that his popularity has collapsed basically he has in every poll something like 25 to 30 percent like a kind of hardcore following but it can't go much above that lula da silva who was the two-term president of brazil from 2002 to 2010 and left office term limited out of office in 2010 with an 86 percent approval rating he um there started to be a lot of animosity toward his party after that his hand-picked successor dilma rousseff won easily in 2010 with his support, but then in 2014, the economy was terrible, Scandal, uh, corruption scandals happened, and she was impeached in 2016. And then shortly after that, Lula was imprisoned as part of this corruption uh, probe. And so 
PT work of the Workers Party of Lula was really in complete discredit. I mean, the polling was overwhelmingly uh, against them, and and Lula's handpicked successor in 2018, Fernando Haddad, who ran against Bolsonaro and made it to the second round, got crushed by Bolsonaro. Um, it wasn't really even close, largely because of the animosity toward PT. But ever since Lula has triumphantly walked out of prison, has been exonerated by the Supreme Court, which ruled that the corruption probe that imprisoned him did so unjustly, that has obviously rehabilitated his reputation among a lot of people. And at the same time, he hasn't been president for 12 years. So a lot of the memories people have of him are kind of romanticized. People have forgotten why they were so angry at PT. A lot of younger people didn't actually live through PT, so they kind of have a, a romanticized vision as well. And so in virtually every poll, he has a 15 to 17 point lead. Is it like 45%, 47%? In Brazil, uses the same system as France, which is that everybody runs on the first round. And then if no one gets 50% of the valid votes, the top two candidates go to a runoff, which at the moment seems like it would be Lula and Bolsonaro, although there's a good chance that given polling data that Lula could actually win in the first round, get more than 50%. The one note of caution I would add is unlike in the US, which has a two-year campaign cycle for president, Brazil deliberately avoids that by prohibiting campaigning until four months or so before the election. So the official campaign hasn't even begun. The candidates are even barred from asking for votes or having signs up. Obviously, they find their ways around that and make it clear they're running. But the actual campaign hasn't started. That means there haven't been any presidential debates that often matter. Lula and Bolsonaro are both indicating they won't go to the debates because they think they don't want to give the third place candidate, Ciro Gomez, any chance to kind of move ahead. So we'll see what the impact is, but there's still a lot that could happen between now and the election. But certainly anybody being rational would place a lot of money on the likelihood that Lula would win, which would obviously mark an incredible reversal since four years ago, he was in a prison cell with a 12 year prison for money laundering and fraud and all kinds of corruption. And now he's not only free, but leading in all polls and, and like you're to return to the presidency. And the election is in October, correct? Correct. At the beginning of October. And then there'll be a runoff if if neither candidate gets 50%. And can you uh, just summarize, I know it's very complicated, but what the basis for his freedom is, for Lula's freedom, and, and what role you played in that? Sure. So... This corruption scandal, when it began back in 2015, was largely popular among most of the society because Brazil has had a, and still does have, a very great problem with systemic corruption. I don't mean the kind of legalized corruption that the U.S. has. I mean, politicians routinely have Swiss bank accounts with many, many millions of dollars that they received in bribes in exchange for awarding government contracts. I mean, just like overt corruption that has stolen from the Brazilian economy a serious uh, amount of money just siphoned off in the course of doing political transactions. And as I said, it, it's systemic. All parties have run on it. And that includes PT. And so when this corruption probe started in 2015, it began imprisoning very powerful billionaire heirs uh, that have always kind of ruled Brazil through their money, construction heirs and the like, oil heirs, and also very powerful politicians. And so most of the population looked favorably upon it, especially the younger people who thought, yes, this is what we needed, a cleansing probe in order to kind of clean Brazil up once and for all of this corruption. 
And after a couple of years, people started looking a little more carefully and started to really suspect that the judge that was leading it had become not just a national hero, but an international hero, Sergio Moro, was clearly more interested in prosecuting Lula and PT than he was other parties. He started, in a lot of people's view, exhibiting a clear right-wing bias and not a commitment to the rule of law. But people were afraid of Sergio Moro. Nobody was willing to stand up to him because he was the most popular figure in the country by far. I mean, he ran the country as a lower court judge for several years. He had the backing of Brazil's big oligarchical media like Globo and pretty much everyone else in his corner. And so people in Congress and even the courts were petrified of overruling him or challenging him, even when he went way outside the lines of what is judicially appropriate. So this, these suspicions were lingering for a while. And then in 2019, I had a source um, who the authorities say is Walter Delgatti, and he himself has uh, accepted the credit for that, who contacted me and turned over to me enormous amounts of chats and other kinds of communications between Sergio Moro and the lead prosecutors and a bunch of other people as well that revealed, that confirmed all of PT's most extreme suspicions and then some. It showed Sergio Moro plotting constantly in secret with Lula's prosecutors about how to ensure that Lula would be convicted, giving them advice on how to manage their public marketing and communications campaign, collaborating to ensure that center-right politicians that were supporters of his didn't end up being prosecuted, even though they were guilty of the same things. It really pulled the mask off of Sergio Moro and this entire probe and showed that they were in fact corrupt and highly politicized all along. And with that evidence revealed, obviously it created a lot of destabilization of the Bolsonaro government because when Bolsonaro won, the first thing he did was turn around and he made Sergio Moro his minister of justice and public security, which basically made Moro the second most powerful official in, in the country. He, 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 in other words, took Moro from his position as a lower court level judge who had just imprisoned Bolsonaro's main adversary, Lula, and rewarded him, certainly that's how it appeared, by putting him into this high position in government. And so when I, my source contacted me and gave me all of these incriminating documents, by that point, Moro was a vital part of the Bolsonaro government. And when we began doing the reporting in June of 2019, you know, I kind of became public enemy number one of the Bolsonaro government for that reason. I ended up eight months later being criminally prosecuted with 126 felony indictments because they claimed that I was a collaborator or conspirator with my source, the way the U.S. government is currently claiming about Julian Assange and, and Chelsea Manning. The Supreme Court luckily intervened and issued a ruling saying that any retaliation against me was a violation of my constitutional right of a free press. So the case was dismissed, but they certainly tried. But the ultimate most enduring outcome was it enabled other institutions to start to challenge Sergio Moro because his popularity plummeted when we were able to show the truth about what he was doing. And it culminated in a Supreme Court ruling that nullified all of Lula's convictions, not by saying Lula was innocent, but by saying he never got a fair trial because the judge was partial and biased and, and acted inappropriately. And that cleared Lula's name for the moment, at least. It restored all of his political rights and enabled him to run again. And is Bolsonaro and his family, are they making any threats against you? No, I, you know, the, you know, my kind of year, 18 months in the spotlight as public enemy number one of the Bolsonaro movement and the Bolsonaro government has thankfully receded 
in part because Sergio Moro left the government and he did so shooting and 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 at Bolsonaro, claiming, you know, Bolsonaro was uh, corrupt and he had interfered in police investigations to protect his family members. And ironically, I was replaced as public enemy number one of the Bolsonaro movement by Sergio Moro because he had left trying to damage Bolsonaro as much as he could. And on some level, Bolsonaro and his government started kind of reconsidering the reporting I did because now it was ammunition to use against Sergio Moro. And in fact, Bolsonaro has cited our reporting to try and show whenever he's, because Sergio Moro was thinking about running for president. He said he was going to run for president. He was a total failure in the polls and he dropped out. So no one pays any attention to him anymore. But when he was running for president, Bolsonaro had to pay attention to him and Bolsonaro would use our reporting to show that Sergio Moro was corrupt, which was kind of amusing um, and ironic in a million different ways. So yeah, you know, our, my role and our role in as kind of the villain to, to Bolsonaro's movement has definitely receded and it's made my life a little more tranquil and calm. Thank God for Sergio Moro. Yeah, I mean, he really performed a great service in, in standing up that way. I wanted to get your thoughts on the Summit of the Americas. Biden is hosting, or the US is hosting the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. and But there's been some resistance to the US stance of excluding countries that it doesn't like and wants to destabilize and overthrow. So AMLO, the president of Mexico, has refused to attend because Biden won't invite Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. I'm curious your thoughts on that and whether you think AMLO's stance signals a perhaps a sign that U.S. power over the region is declining. I think AMLO is a very interesting and idiosyncratic figure. So sometimes it's hard to infer broad trends from what he's doing. He, you know, remarkably had, seemingly had more favorable sentiments toward Trump than he does for toward Biden, despite being a longtime leftist. He was, in my opinion, the most eloquent, persuasive uh, dissenter to the decision by Twitter and Facebook to ban Trump from the internet. He really condemned it on very thoughtful and and kind of well-reasoned grounds about the threat posed to democracy when big tech oligarchs who are unelected and, and accountable to nobody can essentially silence and ban elected leaders from participating in the internet. He's been heterodox in other ways as well, including refusing to sanction Russia, which is pretty remarkable, that level of independence for a Mexican leader. You know, I think, Aaron, what's going on here is this is just more of the mass dropping on the United States. I mean, obviously, the argument that's raised for excluding the countries that you named is that they're tyrannies. They're not democratic. They, you know, are ruled by despots and the like. And leaving aside all the ways you could dispute that characterization, even if that were true, nobody believes that's really the U.S. motive because Joe Biden is about to get on a plane and go visit the Saudi despots, the real despots and, and like barbaric, barbaric savages, if you want to talk about like actual tyrants and hug them and reaffirm his partnership with them and beg them for oil. So when you are so openly hugging the Saudis, you can't credibly claim even to your domestic population that you have some genuine conviction against, you know, anti-democratic forces when you're so openly supporting anti-democratic forces all over the world. No one is going to buy that with the exception of a few gullible media employees. So, you know, what's obviously going on there is domestic politics, you know, just like 
what explains the Congress's virtually unanimous support for Israel is the fact that the vote of people who are loyal to Israel, whether Jewish Americans or evangelicals, is so important in domestic elections and that can't be alienated by supporting the Palestinians. The vote of the Cuban community, but increasingly as well, the Venezuelan community in places like Florida, critical swing state and other places has become more important than ever. And those voters tend to prioritize the question of how Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, any government they perceive as communist or despotic in the region is being treated. And, and, and Democrats are basically highly motivated to show how aggressive they are against those governments. I think that's clearly what is motivating this. AMLO knows that's what's motivating it. He doesn't take seriously the U.S. claims, nor should anyone rational about, you know, opposing opposing tyranny. So I, I think you're right that to some extent, the fact that the Mexican president is willing to be this kind of defiant against a democratic administration right over the border is illustrative of the fact that in large part because of Ukraine and how the U.S. has gone all in on Ukraine and therefore has become much more vulnerable than ever before, I think there is more space for countries to be less captive or subservient to the United States. Um, but, you know, I also think that countries are starting to elect leaders like AMLO, who they know are going to be more independent. Um, and that is a political asset increasingly in democracies. And the presidents of Bolivia, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, I think, are also boycotting. Yep. And a, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, you see it, you know, we talked about uh, Biden's trip to, to Saudi Arabia. I mean, there were reports that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman basically refused to accept Biden's calls. He was, you know, talking, he was basically been refusing to sell more oil on the market at, at the United States demand when the whole point of the U.S.-Saudi relationship is we give them all the military weapons and other support they need to stay in power in exchange for their serving our interests with their oil. That's been the entire purpose of Saudi Arabia itself and the U.S.-Saudi relationship for decades. And now they're kind of abandoning it. They've been, you know, kind of hinting that they're willing to use other currencies besides the dollar to buy and sell on the international market, which is a huge threat to the United States. So I think what you're seeing is that the way in which the United States has just kind of invested itself in the war in Ukraine and these, you know, immense sanction regimes against, uh, against Russia, other countries are seeing in there an opportunity to undermine and weaken the United States and they're taking it. Yeah, it is laughable. She said that uh, Karine Jean-Pierre, Biden's press secretary uh, said, the president's principal position is that we do not believe that dictators should be invited, which is the reason uh, that the president has decided not to attend, meaning the Mexican president. But I guess they shouldn't be invited to things. They should just be visited and courted. In yeah, I mean, you know, just like all the U.S. allies in the Middle East from Egypt to, you know, Qatar to the United Arab Emirates, it's been the same thing for, you know, decades, this hypocrisy. And when Trump said similar things, these same people had a complete meltdown. I mean, you know, the the what you see in retrospect is that one of the reasons the political and media class hated Trump so much is because he often said things explicit that they wanted hidden. I'm actually writing about this now when he issued a statement in 2018 rejecting bipartisan calls to cut off relations with Saudi Arabia in the wake of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Trump just came out and said, like, look, maybe they did kill Jamal Khashoggi, but at the end of the day, you know, America first means that we're going to do business with people who are serving our interests and they yeah. give us a lot of oil 
They buy a ton of weapons from our weapons manufacturers. And everybody had a meltdown, even though obviously that's exactly the reason the Saudi-US relationship has endured for this long, because the US government doesn't care about democracy or human rights or anything like that in making its decisions. It only cares about its self-interest. The only thing different about Trump was that he was honest enough to admit that. Right. The difference is, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre just said pretty much the exact same thing, that when the president sees he can deliver results for the American people, he will engage with people who serve that interest. But the difference is she said that while she was reading from a script and kind of embarrassed to be saying it, whereas Trump was very open about right. it and yeah. in, in admitting it. Exactly. Which is one of the many who said it Trump or Chomsky moments that we've seen which is where Trump and Chomsky say the same thing, basically. But yep. for Trump, he's celebrating it. Like, of course, we're going to keep doing business with them because they're buying a lot of weapons. And Chomsky would say, of course, the United States is going to keep dealing with them because they're going to buy a lot of weapons. But Chomsky would be condemning that. Well, and I sometimes, though, they actually do say the same things with, I wouldn't say identical, but similar perspective. The most vivid example being the time I think Trump really angered people the most, at least while as president, was when he was asked by Bill O'Reilly how it is that he could do business with Putin when Putin kills people. And Trump responded, you know, kind of with bafflement, you know, saying, you don't think we have our own killers. You right. think we're angels, you know, and that's pretty much what Chomsky would say if asked, like, well, why shouldn't Putin be isolated and banished given his, you know, willingness to use violence? Chomsky would immediately point to the fact that any American saying that has to account for their own government. And I think there was a lot of instances where Trump was speaking from that perspective. Though he probably would celebrate the the role that America plays, the violent role America has played more than Chomsky would in some cases. Yeah. I mean, no, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I don't know about celebrate, but at least like accept that it's just like a, an acceptable and standard part of how great powers operate. Yeah. Whereas Chomsky, you know, obviously would be speaking from a place of condemnation but there is an element, I think, of Chomsky as well, even the way you see him talking now about the realities of Russia and Ukraine and the fact that because Ukraine is so important to Russia, it means we have to take that into consideration when deciding what we're willing to do. There's kind of a realism to Chomsky mm -hmm. that I do think is more uh, visible than people often acknowledge. And there was a story that Bolsonaro demanded certain concessions. Did you see this uh, in order to attend the summit? I'm reading at the New York Post, but Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro demanded concessions from the from President Biden before committing to attend the troubled summit of the Americas this week in Los Angeles, according to a new report. Bolsonaro threatened to add his name to the embarrassing list of leaders skipping the summit if he didn't secure a private meeting with Biden, as well as a guarantee that he would not be criticized on any issue, including environmental matters, the AP reported. The AP, citing three unnamed Brazilian cabinet ministers, said Bolsonaro wanted Biden to hold his tongue on the deforestation of the Amazon, as well as potential reforms to Brazilian elections. Yeah, I mean, look, if you want to leave that in, that's fine. I hadn't, you know, heard of it. But I mean, it sounds, you know, like exactly like something Bolsonaro would do. And I think it's very consistent with what we were just talking about. You know, previously, it would have been absolutely unthinkable, absolutely unthinkable for a Brazilian leader to be that defiant toward an American president, even in private, let alone public. And part of that is Bolsonaro's ongoing animus toward Biden. He made no secret of the fact that he wanted Trump to win ideologically. He hates the Democratic Party. So there's part of it that's that, but part of it is just the fact that, you know, I think Bolsonaro, like a lot of countries, a lot of leaders, feels like they have more space now to 
declare their independence from the United States and not just take orders, but also impose their own conditions. On the issue of Ukraine, you've been very critical of uh, Bernie Sanders, the squad, the entire Congressional Progressive Caucus for authorizing another $40 billion for the Ukraine proxy war, a huge chunk of that going directly to weapons contractors. And then on top of that, not even bothering to explain their vote, except for Cori Bush, the sole exception of Cori Bush. I'm just curious your thoughts on whether or not you think the vote would be the same if Donald Trump was in office and pushing through the same bill. Do you think that the Congressional Progressive Caucus would have voted in unison to fund this bill, or do you think there would be any opposition at all? And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Glenn, where can people find your work and anything you want to uh, leave us with in terms of what you have coming up next? Yeah, so I'm at um, Substack, which is where I do my my written reporting and analysis, and I do my video reporting at, at Rumble, and I do my podcasting at Colin, and the thing they all have in common is they're all... Funded by to, Vladimir Putin? Yes, funded by the Kremlin, um, specifically managed by Vladimir Putin. He tells us what we can and can't say and what the outer limits are. But beyond that, it's they're all devoted to giving a place for independent journalists to be able to do their work without the constraints of corporate managers or the censorship threat of big tech. And for that reason, that sector of the media has become, to me, by far the most important and the most encouraging, given that's where all the growth is, because people no longer really trust corporate journalism. They only trust independent journalism. And that, I think, is very encouraging. And so I try and have all my work be in those kind of places. I try and do what I can to grow them and help them thrive and promote them, because I think that's where the future of journalism is going to be. That was great. Always great to hear from Glenn. So much to say. So much to say. Could have talked to him for a lot, a lot longer. Try to keep the Russiagate stuff to a minimum, Katie, because I know this can this is not the most interesting topic for everybody, even though oh, it is for me. So yourself short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but great to hear from Glenn. Yeah. And you're going to definitely want to uh, become Substack subscribers if you're not already to hear this full interview because it gets very interesting. And you the can outtakes at, are. Oh, the outtakes are phenom, phenomenal. Phenomenal. And you can do that at usefulidiots.substack.com. That's right. All right, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows, so you don't have to watch them. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.